also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this. Hang on. I'm thinking about what has happened in the last few weeks. Bonus episode of uh, Bottleman. It is Bonus. Riley, and it is Dan. And we are joined uh, by uh, our, a guest uh, today uh, from the uh, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Uh, it's Chuka Ejikam. Chuka, how's it going? Not too bad. How about you? Uh, very well, thanks. Uh, I have been officially friendshored. Uh, Dan has friend Dan has friend shored me. Uh, have, he has sent me a uh, a drum machine a few months ago, uh, and yep. I am going to friend shore him uh, a few beats when I finally uh, beat the learning curve of the electron model cycles. Yeah, well, you know, when I get those beats, uh, you, you're gonna you're gonna have to provide a few beats for free if you, you know what I mean. That's how friend shoring works here. We're upholding uh, democratic beat making. <laughs> yeah, we're we're more of a family here at friend shoring at, at the Bottleman Friend Shoring Institute. Yeah, um, yeah. but uh, uh, Chuka, you've written you you've sort of thought about uh, friend shoring a little bit, and I think it's going to be very interesting to uh, to talk about it with you and what it means. Um, but before we get into it, um. We have to look, hey, you know what, a little closer to our own shores, uh, yeah. because uh, the, the, the food professor has spoken. Dr. Dr. Dinner himself. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Mr. Dinner. Yeah, Dr. So, Mr. Dinner. As a Canadian citizen, you might think, you might be angry, uh, you might be thinking, it's really unfair that one of the grocery monopoly oligarch families has been artificially raising food prices at their, uh, at their uh, locations where you go buy your food. And Dr. Professor Dinner, the food professor, uh, Sylvian Charlebois, was on CBC yesterday talking with Ian Hannah Mansing to tell you that, no, you're wrong and stupid for thinking that. <laughs> because what, doc what Dr. Professor Food has determined is that it's not one incredibly greedy piece of shit family trying to squeeze the last few drops of profit out of a very uh, precarious economic period for most people in this country. It's not that. It all comes down to the carbon tax. It's oh, carbon yeah. tax. We got to get rid of the carbon tax, folks. You got to feel bad. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. If you want lower price food, you should also feel bad about it. Because look, the, the Westons need to maintain that weird little town in Florida that they sort of own. <laughs> that's right. No, I mean this. This whole thing is, um, or so I should make one clarification that I'm um, a research associate with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, but um, not directly an employee. So I don't know if if they would take issue with being, my being described as from there. But but it's sort of neither here nor there. One thing that I think is rather grotesque about this entire affair is like there are all of these deeply evil structures embedded in our food systems, right? Like one, the fact that we exploit uh, historical and continually propagated international inequity to benefit from um, from migrant workers coming here to harvest our food, right? Uh, the, the fact that you can, that we've deemed it acceptable to literally profit from the fact that like people exist and thus need to eat, right? Without there being any obligation as to the nutritional value of the, the, the quote unquote food that's provided. So like all, all of these uh, existing grotesqueries that are just sort of the permanent, the permanent state. And then there's this additional 
increased profiteering on top of it. And so for this guy to come in and say, oh, well, you know, it's not like they're not doing anything wrong. It's it's yeah. like they're like they were doing they, they were doing everything wrong prior to this situation developing. So I, I don't like I don't know where that sort of mindset comes from. I mean, Dr. Professor Food has an answer for, for the, uh, you know, the statement, you know, people deserve free food, right? Like, like food should be a human right. And his answer was quote tweeting somebody who said that and then saying, uh, free food for everyone. I would like lobster for dinner every night. And like, they, like, like even, with, sorry, go ahead, please. Which is, which is paternalistic and completely insane at the same time. And this is, and I mean, this is a guy who says, who said, uh, I've been following the, the, uh, sort of f- food systems in Canada or the, or the grocery industry for 25 years. And so, and not, not only that, but is, but is ostensibly a professor. And so to engage with that argument, which is a political argument, right? To engage with that argument with this most, the sort of most facile, childish, like, oh, then everybody's going to have cake every night. Like that's, it's unbelievable. It's, <laughs> I think you, you guys are both missing my favorite of Dr. Dinner's points, okay. uh, which that? is that, look, if you look at the richest CEOs in Canada, Right, oh, the, the Weston family is like forty-seven, whereas the <laughs> people who control the Rogers company, they're at number three. And it's like just mm-hmm. because it's a less successful cartel doesn't make it not a fucking cartel, <laughs> asshole. Yeah, just the fact that uh, Galen Weston can just sit there and watch his material uh, wealth just grow and grow without doing anything, without making any moves. Uh, is yeah you don't you absolutely do not gotta hand it to this guy at all <laughs> or feel or feel sorry for him in any way in fact you know what my suggestion what dr food did not respond to my suggestion but my suggestion was why don't we just take their money away <laughs> put them in a labor camp nationalize it you know Minute. dr dr food's answer is is you know if you dig into some of his responses it's it's more competition you know on the surface, he seems anti-monopoly, but he's also very quick to absolve these people of any wrongdoing, you know? Hey, that's, you know what? That's Canada, right? That's life in the lazy <laughs> river. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, we, we need to, we need to be sure, you know, that, that we not, we're not going to, this is not a boat for rocking. All right. You know what? Loblaws rebranded as like the LCBO is more of a luxury lifestyle thing. And would they have been able to do that? You know, if they weren't sort of making sure that, you know, no frills wasn't undercutting them with their no frills approach, right? Would that have been able to happen? Uh, legally speaking, we do not know if no frills is not undercutting with no frills based approach. Uh, but th- th- that, that was just, uh, that was uh, for rhetorical purposes only. Anyway. Uh, Good job, buddy. Yeah, thank you very much. But realistically, right, the, the, this, is, this is just sort of, um, I, think, I think what Dr. Dinner really is doing here, right, is it, 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 it is... One of the um, one of the classic. I mean, look, we see this in Britain all the time. Is one of the classic deployments of an. Oh well, actually, it's much more complicated than than you could possibly think. Uh, argument for why it's good that you're not eating, or that you're eating less, or that what you're eating he, is worse. He literally says that in his introduction to the CBC piece when he was promoting it. He said, "This is way more complicated than any of you idiots could possibly mm-hmm. understand." Yeah. And you know, it's true. The system may be complicated, but the need fucking isn't. That's yeah. it. That's always it, right? And that's the thing that people like. So, I mean, there are a few things here that just drive me absolutely mad. But that's one thing that it seems like people who always make the argument about the, the complicated nature of politics will never um, concede that, like, whether or not achieving the end is a complicated task 
the end that we need to achieve is not complicated. It's very clear what must be done. And therefore, every argument that either doesn't meaningfully put us in that push us in that direction, or perhaps, you know, more more distressingly takes us in the other direction, or even just fails to recognize that that is the end that we need to achieve. Those arguments are like, not all that useful. And they're not like, you don't owe it to somebody to consider their bad faith, uh, their bad faith argument about how actually, you know, the the fact that you can't afford to heat your home is good because of climate change. And like, you know, there's their concerns about um, about rising obesity in the West, and therefore lack of uh, access to food is really just, you know, increasing the overall health of the country. Like, mm. It's it's, <laughs> it's 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 again, or you say, oh, it's because of the carbon tax. Well, okay, well, wait, why do we need to pay the carbon tax? Couldn't we just stop <laughs> yeah. drilling? Because it's, it's the what it, it's it always strikes to me as right is Okay, so there's a kind of, of armor that you put on tanks, right? It's called explosive reactive armor. And what happens is when it detects a projectile coming in, it bursts off and reduces the impact of that projectile. Okay. Um, and what, at every time someone deploys an it's so complicated argument, I always, it always feels like a piece of explosive reactive armor going off where ultimately what they're trying to do is just blunt what you're saying so that you'll shut up. Basically, yeah. to say, okay, well, it's it's expensive because of the carbon tax. Okay, well, wait, why are we paying the carbon tax? Why couldn't we just stop bringing the fucking oil out of the ground? Oh yeah, well, it's um, it's it's actually uh, expensive because it's 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 expensive, yes, but you know, it's look, it's, it's it, this CEO is not so rich. So wait a minute, why are they all so rich? Right. It, it <laughs> yeah, never stands exactly. to a follow up question. I always, oh, I always, Doctor Dinner, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wasn't coming in hot, and now I'm hot. Now I'm hot. Yeah, whenever I see one of these new guys, because. Dr. Dinner, I, I've been informed, has been like a staple on Canadian media for years. Dr. Dinner also, uh, by the way, worked for the Westons at one point. So there's that, too. Oh, so, he course, knows in, so he knows there's nothing going on because he's seen the should, inside. You see the inside. He's seen it. Um, but, you know, whenever I see one of these guys, these these weird guys and th- that pop up in, in Canadian media, the people that uh, CBC go to, that Global News goes to, whatever – I always ask myself, okay, like, what is their function? And the function is always disciplining the plebs, you know? Like, that is the job, is to, like Riley, you said, Chuka, like, like, it is to stop people from asking, demanding an answer for a very obvious question. Yeah. Like one thing I think is that is like incredibly prevalent in media across, uh, you know, Western quote unquote liberal democracies and, uh, and, and among Western politicians is like this, they describe what I would, what I believe is is just like absolute moral and political cowardice. They present it as like pragmatism and seriousness and wisdom, right? So for example, Dan, when you're, you're saying, you know, how about we just like take the wealth from all these awful people? Right. Of course, the rejoinder is like, oh, well, you know, if we if we just start taking billionaire assets, then we're going to discourage we're going to disincentivize success. We're going to discourage people from coming here. You know, uh, uh, people who have will flee the country as though, Mm -hmm. you know, the entirety of our world must be built around the the or must be built within the boundaries set by just like a few heinous, rapacious profiteers. The 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 fact that they would would protest and act against with their significant material resources act against any attempt to develop a more equitable and just society doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it right it means we just shouldn't listen to them ever about anything yeah that's it that's it there's so the verdict here on bottleman today fellas is uh dr professor food gets an f minus yeah. uh, see me after class <laughs> that yeah that is the grade um but, you know, we're not just here to talk about uh, the good professor, the good doctor. 
Um, we're here to talk about uh, sort of a main character on Bottleman uh, and and her vision for the future. So we're we're talking about Canada stepping up to lead foreign policy in 2023 finally. with this brave. Finally, finally, it's our time to lead. It's the, we, we got a seat at the big boys table. Uh, we have a brave new vision of a bipolar world, uh, which is divided into good nations who support very real ideas like rules-based international order and friendshoring, which we'll get into. And then the bad nations who embrace authoritarianism, unless, of course, they have natural resources, which we need, or we want to sell the military equipment. I, I mean, That's the caveat. Bad the funny nations. thing is, the funny thing is, the um, the, some of the most, the, the ones that do have the natural resources that we like to be friends with, like Saudi Arabia, when we say, hey, we could use some of those resources, they tell us to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even yeah. fucking work oh, man. it doesn't work and we're gonna get into it not working and oh. it, uh you know continuing to not French work is because the architect name. The, ar- <laughs> the architect of this new muscular uh canadian foreign policy is the capo di capo tutti of girl bosses our own christia freeland who like we've talked about freeland a lot on this show we've talked about her personal history, the history of her family, uh, her domestic political career, such as it is, her inexplicable popularity among liberals, despite the fact that she hasn't really seemed to achieve anything of no policy-wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and let me just uh, let me just check here. How are those going? Not great. That didn't work. That did not work. Uh, she achieved um, um, a very a perfect phone call with the Confederation of Small Business Owners to figure out what to do about COVID. Yeah, so exactly. you know, don't say don't exactly. say nothing. But we so you know, over the course of this podcast, we've often wondered what the applied foreign policy position of someone who's you know, as we've gone over, whose entire life has really been underpinned by this monomaniacal focus on a very specific uh, interpretation of a very specific Ukrainian history, identity, independence, and destiny. And also someone who is one of the most neoliberal pilled people uh, on on the political chessboard. So after this appearance she made at Brookings and a handful of press releases, um, we don't have to wonder as much because it's out there and it's called the fucking Freeland Doctrine. And uh, it's exactly Good what stuff you think is always is. called the the name doctrine, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's all, all all the best yeah. stuff is called that. The Bush Doctrine, for example, one of my favorites, best do- one of the best doctrines. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now sort of mm-hmm. uh, replaced by its uh, its updated 2022 version. Uh, but the updated 2022 version, I mean, I, I, look, I, I, we talk a lot about about the Freeland Doctrine as well. But like so many things, right? We seem to be taking something from the U.S. and and rebranding it um, because you know so much of what's going on right now, especially in the U.S. Department of State, right? Like. Uh, and this sort of flew under the radar for a lot of people, but uh, the U.S. has now f- sort of formally declared economic war on China um, mm-hmm. by uh, uh, sort of uh, by sort of halting all semiconductor exports. Just absolutely bonkers that that's just like just completely goes by without mention. It's like that's acceptable for the U.S. government to do that, right? It's it's just complete no issue, right? Not not at all um, interfering in another country's. Uh, self-determination, you know, not at all potentially causing issues for the more than a billion people that live in China. Nothing. No, yeah. it none of that. Or matters. in fact, for global supply yeah. chains, for example, uh, you like your, your little, you want to play, you know, Candy Crush on your phone. You know, you want to, you want to go on Grailed and see if uh, the 2021 uh, <laughs> green uh, Rick Owens Mastodon pants have dropped in price at all. 
you need sort of the you need the dynamics of globalization that were set in 2000 to do that, right? Well, not to not for yes. obviously Rick Owens to transition from a powdered maker to a designer who would sort of continue to break boundaries in fashion, uh, but rather uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> what you need is the post 2000 specific trade order, right? That's where the and it, it, this is why I think this is ironic. The whole sort of the whole friend shoring argument. Uh, which is, again, sorry, that we'll get to, so I'm, I'm almost jumping ahead a little bit, which is that fundamentally the neoliberal world was built on attempting to get China into the WTO. And that was the apogee. Yep. That was the height of its achievement was getting China into the WTO. And then this is what created the dynamic that's, that has basically been uh, the world for the last, I don't know, uh, 22 years. Uh, what the people and that the people at the Battle of Seattle sort of saw coming and wanted to avoid, uh, which was yeah. that um, there was going to be a producer of last resort and a consumer of last resort, and that we're going to just fuel this entire thing with uh, cheap fake credit, and that was the system for a long time. And to see the the same kinds of people, you know, who were um, the same sort of political ideology that was involved in sort of in creating that. To now sort of undo it and without any kind of real revision is, you know, a bit jarring, right? That the same sort of ultra neoliberals who, um, who globalized the world economy are now deglobalizing it for reasons of what is essentially a new Cold War that is terrifying and nobody seems to want to deescalate. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just going to just briefly say, too, you know, as we've covered on this show since uh, I would say really ramped up since uh, Huawei and Meng Wanzhou's arrest and you know, John Bolton's kind of vision of the future circa 2017, the media in Canada, at the very least, has just been acting as a fucking meat tenderizer on the public, getting them softened up to accept, Chuka, like you said, something completely insane, like the United States waging open economic warfare on China. I mean, and like, so, and we've seen in, in the news recently, U.S. Army and Navy officials explicitly stating um, that, you know, the U.S. has to move to, what, what do they call it? Um, well, uh, war footing. Yeah, war footing. These fucking euphemisms, man. Um, yeah. Has to move to a war footing regarding China. Um, a U.S. Navy official, I think, explicitly claimed that China would invade Taiwan by the end of the year. And to me, that's very troubling. Not because, like, you know, I'm I'm too old, far too old to believe anything that a U.S. Army official says. But having publicly made that claim, uh, that's now, of course, in record. And so... If China doesn't invade, the U.S. can well what either claim that like they scared them off, or um, that yeah. they actually have invaded and it's just surreptitious, or um, or China will invade, right? But there are, there isn't a good outcome after that that statement has been made, and so it's it is extremely concerning that like the the notion that the U.S. and of course by extension NATO would even like the fact that it's it's considered a possibility it is like that that would be an act of anti-life like that is contemptuous to all organisms on this planet it's good lord yeah and i mean they're not just they're not just doing it on that front they're essentially fighting a two-front war right now because there's you know for the first time since world war ii there's a american army unit active combat duty in europe and i watched a really brief abc clip yesterday where the journalist is flying around in a helicopter with some servicemen, and one of the servicemen refers to Russia explicitly as the adversary, our adversary, uh, which which is, you know, that that on the surface seems normal to me because of all the rhetoric around this. But if you if you decouple it from the rhetoric, it's fucking terrifying that you have U.S. Army units referring to 
Russians as, you know, we were, we've been told over and over again that this isn't a proxy war. It's not a proxy war. It's not a proxy war. And then it's like, oh, it's a fucking proxy war. <laughs> no, and I so, mean, the, the reports about like dysfunction in the Russian military and, and um, people who are conscripted attempting to, um, to sort of flee or hide or whatnot, like none of those reports have caused reflection or, or, um, uh, restraint on the part of Western legacy outlets and Western quarters who were like, like gleefully, like, you know, you could, if a child yeah. drew a, a cartoon of, of, a Russian person dead, I'm sure that I feel like their, their parent, if they happen to be a pundit would put it on the goddamn fridge. Like it, the level of malice that has sort of just been very rapidly created within society for millions, again, millions of people who are subjected to the decisions and, um, power structures of someone that the West claims is like, you know, the global madman or what have you. Like it's, it's just fundamentally incoherent and that seems to not matter. Yeah. Well, I mean, so you, you were talking about the, the sort of, uh, the sort of national vibe of cheering for anti-life, the Freeland doctrine, uh, sort of, <laughs> sort, of puts, sort of explicitly lays this out. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit from, uh, uh, and I hate to do it, but uh, radical centrist Max, Maximum Fawcett's uh, piece <laughs> on the on the Freeland doctrine. Um, he says, Christia Freeland is Canada's minister of finance and deputy prime minister, but it's on the global stage where she truly shines. I don't know about that. Uh, the last the latest example came in a speech she delivered at a Brookings Institute event in Washington, D.C., laying out her vision for uh, the new world order that needs to. He should have chose different. Yeah. Words <laughs> that, that needs to needs to unfold in the wake of Russia's invasion yeah, of Ukraine. Been, the the, the um, deputy prime minister was promoting a great reset of relations. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. That's just it. Just kind of goes to show how just uh, like out of touch these people, the the people sort of laundering this vision are. Again, that, to be clear, a lot of people talking about yeah. the Great Reset are are, are are conspiracy theorists. I'm not endorsing them. Just suggesting that Christopher Freeland was using language <laughs> that tends to be used by conspiracy theorists. Uh, Max Fawcett was using language that tends to be used by conspiracy theorists. I'm getting much much better at the disclaimer voice. <laughs> Thank you, Riley. Um, yeah, so he says, you know, Freeland's vision revolves around a renewed embrace of democratic alliances and shared yeah, like with Saudi Arabia interests. Mm-hmm. For example, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. like that, how about? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one that is backstopped by the sh- so-called French shoring of key supply chains. So I'm going to take a moment to say French shoring is actually was was created by uh, Janet Yellen. Uh, I, I think she was the first person to use that. And it was used in the context of like solving post-COVID supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we have those supply chain issues in the first place. Why didn't we have this goes back to asking the simple <laughs> questions, right? Why didn't we fucking have like? Yeah. That's the thing. It's um. I, I don't like that there that we seem to be sleep, well sleepwalking or sleep sprinting uh, to co- sort of confrontations with uh, nuclear armed uh, rivals. Uh, I especially don't like that we seem to be doing that with people who serve sort of are suppliers of um uh, of last resort or indeed in Europe where where I live um our uh, sort of energy provider. Uh, I, I don't really uh, care for that. But then you can say, okay, well, hang on a second. How did that fucking happen? Why? <laughs> why are all the jobs over there? Why is none? Of, why have we not built a single fucking nuclear plant in Europe in the last ten years? Why? Why was everyone who is now saying that friend this kind of like you know friend shoring defensive all this stuff is important? How come it's the same exact people, the same people 
who were who were gleefully, especially in in, in Europe as well, who were gleefully picking this, uh, you might say, easy answer, right? If it was the wrong answer, everyone seems to be very happy to to avoid any kind of mea culpa. Yeah, yeah. How can we? How how would you both of you guys define friendshoring? Because you know there are there are some varying descriptions of what this is and what it means, but. Yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested in your interpretation of what this, this well, radical idea is. I mean, I think explicitly the because of the context in which Freeland discusses it at the Brookings Institute when she talked about like she was. I mean, you know, I think it's it's. I found it quite alarming. Like early on in her talk, she describes the period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the invasion of Ukraine as a sunny season in human history. And like that really stuck out to me too. Yeah. I mean, like what number? Uh, so, fucking Somalia, <laughs> fucking Balkans, fucking uh, Taj- uh, 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 civil war in Tajikistan that uh, left a hundred thousand people uh, dead. You know, I mean, like, even literally the entire the the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Like even just those alone fell in that period. And to her, that isn't not only is it fundamentally like, or it seems to her, it's not fundamentally not upsetting. It isn't an indictment of any of the global structures of power or distribution or, or allocation, anything. So um, so explicitly because she talks about what she calls French or what they call French shoring in the context of, like, a, as you mentioned, a renewed Cold War establishing economic blocks exp- explicitly defined by brinksmanship, then, I mean, I can't I can't think of it really other than attempting to. It's like like um, attempting to establish security ties between countries that she sees as like up for grabs in this new mm-hmm. global context. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's it's uh, to me it's 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 this economic policy is the sugar coating, but but what it is, and she's basically saying this is is a way to, like you said, fight autocracy in her mind. Mm-hmm. You know, like to to it is very much a Cold War view of mm. the world a bipolar sort of good guys and bad guys view of the world which is again it, it, terrifying it, on its mm. own terms right it's not exactly wrong because you know for example right like there the relationship between europe and russia on a purely material sense right i mean when when uh at sort of i'd say uh, 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 the initial um the initial bites taken out of out of out of ukraine like crimea or also um with georgia those all correlated with huge spikes in the price of oil, right? Like, so it's it is actually not wrong that um, that this kind of thing is, um, you might say, enabling behavior that the West doesn't care for, right? That's that's not incorrect, but at the same time, you know, you can you can again ask the same question of, well, hang on a second, if these are people we don't like, if these are if they're doing things we don't care for. Then again, how come this relation? How come we have allowed ourselves to get into this relationship in the first place, right? And if we are accepting the premise that we're in a new Cold War, which I agree is a terrifying one, um, especially if only because the um, there was, I think, an appreciation at the time of the last Cold War, having seen a nuclear detonation occur, there was a terror that a new one might occur. The blitheness, mm-hmm. the blitheness, yeah, it's that is gone. Right, <laughs> with which I have seen the um, the reseparation of the world into the blocks that it is now separated in, right? The uh, the once again, you know, the um, the thesis that trade deters uh, war, kind of being being disproven, right? Um, in fact, in this case, you know, trade mm-hmm. it, again sort of enabled it in the in the example of like Russia and Georgia, right? Um, 
but that that those two uh, that those relationships right between the uh, infinite creditor from the U.S. Fed and the sort of um, infinite and the and the sort of in the production in the case of, of China and Russia right that that, that those relationships that we we, we fostered um, enabled us to get to the place that we're in uh, and that we're sort of now going to retrench them but what are the and we can already see this in Europe at huge domestic consequences uh, because you cannot friendshore on a dime. Right, you, we we talk mostly about no, friendshoring in terms of energy production, right? Because um, again, I think the bigger deal is actually the chips, uh, is actually uh, semiconductors to China because they're the actual peer competitor, uh, rather than Russia, which has shown itself to be pretty, um, let's say, comparatively ineffective as to how it was seen beforehand. Um, but that uh, in, in in energy, right, the the entire economic model of much of Europe, which is that Germany is a kind of mini U.S. Um, and just sort of produces at an enormous amount that allows other European countries to purchase with credit, right? That also is gone because that was underwritten by cheap energy, right? And so now, how many people are going to go cold in, in the in the winter in Europe because we're because of friendshoring, right? How how many? Uh, what are the what th- th- those impacts are not just about deciding on a new place to go shopping? Uh, the impacts are enormous, and again, it's it's what I go back to when I talk about. The events in, in, in events with with Ukraine and Russia as a gigantic colossal failure of risk management on behalf of, on on the part of the global hegemon uh, that we did not that they did not man, adequately manage the the risk that this kind of thing might happen um, that they did not adequately consider the role of nuclear weapons um, and that they did not um, and, and that there has been no preparation for what if this would happen. Uh, among sort of amongst affected countries, and the same thing is going to happen when all of a sudden, you know, you can't get your iPhone because it's going to take Ch- uh, Apple five years to spin up production in India, which is sort of a half friend. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think um, the one thing that you know Freeland doesn't really engage with when she's talking about French shoring is the quite um, distressing state of politics in Canada and two of Canada's closest allies, closest allies, the U.S. and the U.K. The U.S., of course, while still has, you know, Biden and seemingly um, up until uh, until the midterms, at least there's like sort of some measure of uh, cohesion in federal government, despite that, of course, the outcomes are still paltry Um, at the state level. The U.S. is like sort of increasingly fractious and uh, with emerging explicitly fascist elements. It's terrifying in the U.K. Yeah, yeah, in the U.K., of course, the conservative party is going through um, another uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Another sort of self-reflection session. You know, they're going to do doing some trust falls to see if uh, see if anybody will catch them. And the the country has increasingly imposed upon itself um, like economic devastation. Not of course, not limited of course to uh, Brexit, but the sort of this the new mini budget. The incoming prime minister now is is like more extreme than Boris Johnson, despite that mm-hmm. uh, the policies that he was sort of um, kind of forced to implement during the pandemic have given them some sort of uh, more of a public favorable public profile. But nonetheless, I mean, if those are the two two Canada's key allies within the five eyes, like they're both in a pretty sorry state right now. And it's not as though Canada is going to marshal or lead any kind of uh, foreign policy, uh, any kind of like five eyes or NATO foreign policy by itself, certainly not yeah. without relying upon those two countries. Um, and then, I mean, the more fundamental problem almost is that like, 
in of course during the Cold War, the, the communism was explicitly contrasted against capitalism. But now we've reached a point where the sort of political rhetoric of capitalism has just been subsumed so deeply into ideas of like freedom and liberty and democracy that Freeland gets to can sort of by using those words, she presents Western alliances as like fundamentally mm-hmm. good, moral, you know, mm-hmm. seeking uh, the well being of all people. When obviously it's a, it's a, a ludicrous canard and to actually engage with Western interests and their pursuit and the Western interests and the impact of their pursuit globally. And to present that as like, I think it would be much more difficult to present that as a desirable state. But of course that is what she's trying to recreate. And and she wants, I think she wants everybody in the world to be forced to choose like at the, at the barrel of a gun, you know, which side are you on? Which is just. So I've been, you know, personally criticized for, for bringing up, uh, you know, a very real fear that I think is being borne out now in this Freeland doc- doctrine. And the, and the fear was if Christy Freeland gets to, like she seems to have, a position of power where she is dictating Canadian foreign policy, then you have a serious problem because you have somebody whose entire worldview, their, their global view, is underpinned by this generational battle against an evil foe. And that evil foe is Russia. And, and when she came up, like, when she was a young woman, when she was going to Ukraine during Glasnost and working with uh, nationalist organizations there like Rook, who are explicitly nationalist, explicitly anti-communist, this is where her mind is at, you know? And that that global order, like, Chuka, you said that global order, communism doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Yeah, you know, you know, commun- the, uh, the global, um, if you like the enemy in this global order, it, it's like if the first five-year plan was created by Churchill. Yes. You know? <laughs> Well, I mean, and it is, I think it is, again, like it's quite telling that in talking about the Cold War as some, like she, she, of course, portrays it as this, this uh, glorious pitched battle between, you know, the, the, the liberal capitalist uh, protagonists Mm -hmm. and the, and the evil collectivists. Um, But not refusing to engage, of course, with the mass amounts of murder that Western countries engaged in throughout the global South if somebody like, you know, wrote down a word that started with the letters C-O-M, you know, like just like anybody whispers about anything related to sharing and we have to murder everybody in their family. And the the idea that all of that was, was you know, the idea that people on on this, on, you know, Freeland's side of the Cold War, the side that she's sort of actively attempting to resurrect, thought all of that was not only acceptable, but desirable. What implications does that have for the the sort of vision for the world that she has now when she explicitly responds to a question about aid by saying, you know, these people need to die for democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get, let's get democracy, to that. Like um, how we have in so, the UK, for example. Exactly. <laughs> I love so, living here. It's so cool. So, you know, when we, when people talk about this uh, Freeland doctrine and friend shoring, one thing that keeps coming up over and over again, both domestically and internationally is the idea of sacrifice. And the question is, who is doing the sacrificing and why? And Freeland answered that uh, when she was questioned by a represent uh, a man representing an African development bank. Um, and Chuka, you wrote uh, what I think an incredible um, an incredible article in Rabble about this. So do you wanna do you wanna take this part? You wanna do you wanna tell us what happened at Brookings and Thank you. uh um, yeah, so so a man who was in ten, who was in attendance at the at the talk uh, and is a, an employee of the African Development Bank, 
he asked a question about aid. Um, throughout the talk, Freeland had spoken of quote unquote in between countries, which is, you know, these countries that we've been speaking about countries in the global South that, uh, she sort of describes as being, uh, in the sort of in the middle up for grabs and, and well, aren't immediately in either of the, of the sort of economic and political blocks that she's describing and therefore have must make a choice. Um, right. and, and so this, the, the gentleman in attendance, he asks about, aid from Western countries to, I mean, to, you know, organizations such as the African Development Bank and to African countries more directly. And he says that, um, or he sort of poses the question, what is, what is going to happen to aid that is, that was, had previously been uh, offered to African countries, but is now being put toward supporting uh, the war in Ukraine? And Mm -hmm. with, with, sort of very clear signaling from Western countries and politicians that that isn't going to change anytime soon. And in fact, some, um, he doesn't mention this, but there is some, there has been some, uh, you know, I would say very paternalistic uh, expressions from Western, uh, Western political figures that countries in the global South that are insufficiently supportive of Ukraine are sort of should be ashamed of themselves, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I just, uh, I just want to read like what I, I took down um, his his final sort of the final phrasing of the question, and it's it's interesting to me how um, like how deferential and polite, not deferential. Yes. He's he's extremely uh, polite to her Absolutely. in a way that I don't think she's earned. But he says, "You don't want some of our countries to fall into the hands of Russia. Russia is knocking in West Africa, and yet." We don't get as much aid, so we don't backslide on the democratic front. And there is a bit of tension there. And I welcome your response about how we can move forward positively in this regard. Uh, Very, very, like, very well-stated question. Mm -hmm. Very deferential to Freeland. And... Mm -hmm. So and how so, does she answer? So in her reply, she she says that she sort of she wants to take issue with two phrases that he used. She says she so she takes is, issue with um, African countries quote unquote falling into the hands of Russia, and then African countries quote unquote backsliding. And in her response, she talks about how um, you know democracy is very hard. It can only be built by the people, by themselves, for themselves. That's what the people in Ukraine are doing right now. They're, you know, fighting for democracy by themselves, for themselves. More people should take, uh, should take, um, inspiration and, and from them and like sort of model, follow their example. Uh, explicitly, she said that, you know, people need to be willing to die for democracy. Yes. And so, by taking issue with those with those two phrases and then sort of presenting a response that way, clearly she's arguing against the notion that that countries that are sort of looking for support in increasing living standards, increasing economic security, increasing safety, that, that are looking for support from uh, global economic superpowers. Effectively, she's saying that you have an obligation not to accept any aid from Russia or any aid Die from China, for democracy, but of- ours, not yours. Yes, 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 yeah. Like regardless yeah. of your domestic circumstances, regardless of the history of your relations with any with with uh, Western countries, with any other country, it does not matter. You explicitly like you were obligated to refuse aid from those countries because they're bad countries. And then um, by taking issue with the, with the word backsliding, she's again she's saying like, well, you know, if something bad is happening, it's happening because you're allowing mm-hmm. it to happen. You are insufficiently dedicated to to um, self-government. And so, you know, you are letting your society uh, uh, or you are, you are creating a society that's, you know, anti-democratic, you know, 
uninterested in, in fundamental human rights and things like that. And so, I mean, like these are, I find these to be deeply alarming. I find this to be a deeply alarming response. Yeah. Yes. Just the, the basic idea that uh, African countries have not already been dying over, like people have not already been dying en masse for democracy. Or like, for, I mean, if we want to, if we want to define democracy as like this sort of vague idea of like more participation in government and a better life, the idea mm-hmm. that Af- Africans have not been dying en masse for that for decades is fucking insane. So explicitly urged by, you know, Western policy and, and uh, actions, Western interventions. I mean, you know, the, the, as African countries took independence throughout the 60s, there, you begin to see a clear and horrific pattern of Western interventions, of Western support for military coups, of Western assassinations of elected leaders. I mean, for, for the deputy prime minister of a country that participated in the assassination of the first democratically elected leader of the Congo to say that more Africans need to die for democracy. Like it's, 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 it's just in, incomprehensibly cruel. I don't understand. I don't, I genuinely don't understand how someone could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, I, I also have to bring up the fact that it is in inter- her argument is internally completely, utterly hypocritical. It is the only way that it isn't is if you forget what happened in January of this year, because, you know, when she's saying uh, African countries need to look to Ukraine and look at what the Ukrainians are doing, which is fighting and dying for a democracy. I mean, first of all, I would say talk to uh, any rail workers in Ukraine about how democratic their country is right now. Talk to anyone whose job has been whittled down to like the barest nub uh, by the Office of Special Solutions and Results, headed up by fucking Saakashvili. But it's not just even that. It's that back in January, Zelensky, the guy she's holding up as the primo uh, example of a democratic leader, Zelensky mm. wanted to jail Petro Poroshenko. Poroshenko being the, the, the uh, former Ukrainian president who came out sort of on top after Maidan. Poroshenko being, um, you know, sort of the generator of this new wave of nationalism that uh, that sort of ripped the country apart after Maidan. Uh, Petro Poroshenko was going to be jailed and go sh- through the judicial system in Ukraine. Zelensky was spearheading that. And he stopped because fucking Freeland told him to. She called him. She called him and said, you're not jailing Poroshenko because Poroshenko, for obvious reasons, is extremely popular with Ukrainian diaspora who are more on the right wing mm-hmm. of things. Um, so that that's it. Like, like, is Ukraine a democracy? I don't know. If if the fucking finance minister of Canada can call the president of your country and tell him not to put somebody through the judicial system, <laughs> you're you're not dealing with a fucking democracy. I'm sorry. No, I mean the finance minister of Canada too. Like that is such a <laughs> oh, deep man. L. That's such a deep. It's L. a huge L. Massive L for <laughs> democracy. Massive L for self determination. Um, and I I don't um. I mean, the, 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 so, and, you know, any, the, again, like it's the, the idea that, so, you know, Freeland speaks again, very sort of floridly about, um, uh, about the war in Ukraine, about Zelensky. I, you know, I, I'm not Ukrainian. It's not clear to me that like the average person in Ukraine sees their condition right now as being engaged in a great global battle against autocracy and for democracy. I imagine they're just like, my fucking country was invaded. Like, I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. Um, yeah. And the the 
the idea that like you, it was so easy, like in a day, it was so easy to get mass Western support for un, uncritical, universal support for every every aspect of the Ukrainian military, every aspect of the Ukrainian government. You know, people, you know, hashtagging a, a, a phrase in a language that they don't speak, that they have no uh, no understanding of the sort of political history of the idea that you could get all of this support for a country that people have no information about that immediately made any criticism of that, that country's government or its actions uh, to be immediately made it so that any, any of those criticisms were, were met with sort of accusations of being a propagandist for the official enemy. I mean, uh-huh. again, in the, in, in the context of this, this sort of newly, conf- newly conflictual rhetoric between global superpowers, we should be very concerned that it is that, easy to marshal support across the country and across uh, across the West for for mass violence like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, people were sounding the alarm on this uh, for for years since basically Russiagate, you know, like that this that this is going to lead to, like you said, the ability to marshal uh, total support for mass violence, uh, zero questioning of states, actual aims and essentially create an information environment where to speak plainly and assess the situation uh, on a material level or a historical level is impossible. Uh, sorry, can, you cannot can you guys, do that. You can't talk about, you know, and, and it works both ways too, because the people who really, the, the sort of Z heads who really support Putin's invasion of uh, Ukraine as some kind of grand anti-imperialist project, which of mm-hmm. course it isn't, um, <laughs> you know, these, these yeah, guys, Vladimir Putin, anti-imperialist. Like, yeah, come on. Vladimir Putin, the staunch, staunch <laughs> fucking socialist. Like those people obviously did not listen to his pre-invasion speech. Right? Mm. Uh, just quickly, right? can so you similarly, hear me? Uh, you know, if you are an anti-imperialist, criticizing that will get you stomped too. So, um, yeah, this has this has like repercussions in both directions that are terrifying to me. And mm. and fr- this Freeland doctrine and the way she talks specifically. This anecdote about her talking to this this man from the African Development Bank who is talk who is who is just kind of like asking her the most softball question is it just sums this whole thing up. We're coming to the end of this um, uh, of this discussion about friendshoring the and the economic dimension, or at least the e- political economic dimension of the new Cold War. Who gets what? Who trades with who? Who suffers the consequences? But there's one more concept that I think we have to discuss before we uh, we all go our separate ways and go back to our normal life. Ethical oil. It's back. Ethical because oil, baby. <laughs> I mean, it's you, you can't have friend shoring without uh without, you know, uh, Alberta getting its little slice of the pie. You know what I mean? That's best mm-hmm. friend shoring. Best I mean, friend shoring. it's it's quite I mean it's quite something to watch um the the uh spokesperson for the White House, the spokeswoman for the White House talk about how the U.S. is uh, hitting record oil and gas production levels, like this year, next year, right? Record levels. And it's being presented as an achievement. And then, you know, Democrats are defending oil and gas extraction production and the increase against right-wingers who are, who are saying that uh, it's, who are, who are arguing that it's insufficient. <laughs> it's like, like, it's just, like there's, the, the, no, everybody, no, it's cool. It's democracy. You've got two different viewpoints. Uh, two different viewpoints of why the oil needs to come out. Mm. There's one group that says if we don't take the oil out of the ground, then authoritarian states are going to, um, 
you know, uh, you do again, as I said, use spikes in the price of oil to like conduct invasions, as in the case of Russia, it sort of did do. Uh, mm. Or the other side, which says if we don't take the oil out of the ground, that's gay. <laughs> you know the oil's coming out of the ground either way it's just a question of why yeah and i mean yeah like it's it's i mean she so in the in when in speaking in dc at the Brookings institute freeland does talk about climate change a little bit but she makes those those um what i would characterize as uh hollow statements about how you know we we cannot allow prosperity to or our pursuit of prosperity or whatever or, or you know growth to get in the way of, of climate action right but it's mm-hmm. always just saying oh like all of these things that i actually care about and will speak at length about and describe how i think we should structure all of our engagement internationally around sort of uh, uh, entrenching these specific ideologies and then pursuing these economic ends also you know there's like climate and we're not going to forget about that um, <laughs> yeah, that, like it, don't worry, folks. Uh, right, like, it's still no, on the to-do list. No meaningful engagement, and I mean, it's it's and you know, like in the in the in the sort of days after when she released a pseudo apology, saying she didn't mean to offend anybody, and even in that talk, she talked about how Western countries need to engage more with countries in the global south and things like that. But like, let's you know, just sort of in speaking about Africa as we were were before. Her discussion of engagement with Africa doesn't consider reparations, doesn't consider loss and damage payments, doesn't consider Canada's position on intellectual property rights for life-saving vaccines and medical technologies, doesn't consider Canada's support for AFRICOM, doesn't consider the plethora of Canadian mining companies that operate throughout Africa, doesn't doesn't consider the increasing number of people who of Africans who are drowning in the Mediterranean because of Fortress Europe, right? None of those things are actually literally engaged. They're just all sort of in the air. And we, we know that they're, we have, they have to be dealt with in some way, but, but all of like the, the, the human beings who live in Africa, they're not there. I, I, in my opinion, for, to, to, to Christopher Freeland, they're not real people. Like they're, yeah. They're just like the sort of idea of people that like, should they choose to be Western allies, then potentially, you know, we can welcome them into the, the, the fold or something. But I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you can, I don't know how people can talk about continuing oil and gas production, talk, talk so blithely about uh, climate action without recognizing that like we are, we are welcoming a carousel of death. We are creating a world in which hundreds of millions of people at best will be left to die by conditions that they had no part in creating. That is we cannot allow that to happen. And I don't think that she sees it as fundamentally objectionable that it may. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, she's focused and, on defeating the great Satan of communism. Right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Which, well, she, yeah, she, she did it. Well, her, her, her parents did, did that. And now she has to like, she, they defeat, they defeated the first the first one. Now she's doing the farce. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> excellent. Yeah. First is tragedy. That's, that's what makes this, I think sort of so, so dangerous, right? Is that the, is that because everyone's on the same side, you know, the tragedy of the Cold War has been replaced with the farce of whatever this is. <laughs> and we know that the farce, the farce ends bigger and so than the, the tragedy. Front, the, the, the punchline, Chuka, as you said early in the episode, the punchline to this joke is anti-life. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it is hostile to human life. And I think, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. You, you go ahead. I'm just noting that I have to wrap up. Okay. You know, I don't really want to live in a country where every uh, complaint, legitimate complaint, uh, even domestically about, you know, food prices or, you know, why wages are going to be frozen or why certain uh, agreed upon uh, coalition implementation, things like a dental plan, uh, 
need to come at the cost of cuts to other services. I don't want to live in a country where the answer to those questions is because Russia, you know, like that is the well, worst you know case why. scenario. You know me. why this is still a farce? Because in the 30, when a now very clear, um, let's say unusually equal years of um, liberal democracy, again, equal with the usual caveats, um, is that the reason that we had to have social security, the reason that we had to have like uh, public medicine was also because Russia, <laughs> you know? It's um there's right. a, there's an old um I I can't I don't know if there's I I think this was a this was a, a it's one of these ads that you see can buy in like Camden Market or whatever in London right this the tat shops which is um an an ad from the uh, maybe it's not a real ad I don't know but an ad from the fifties that says is your bathroom breeding Bolsheviks oh, use yeah. double quilted toilet that. paper <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's the thing right is what are they is, gonna do when they get what they want that's what I want to <laughs> know when they get what they want they fucking want to break it up into like ethnic republics or whatever this fucking uh, CIA project. Hey, hey Dan, where are, the nuke, where are the nukes going to go? Oh, yeah, that's that's the good question. It's broken up into a bunch of antagonistic ethnic republics. Where are the nukes going to go? Oh, like, I'm sh- sure they'll be disposed of responsibly, you know. Oh, I'm sure. 100% yeah. of them as well, because it has to be 100%. If it's not yeah. 100%, then that's about as world ending. Yeah. Uh, so cool. Great. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, this comes back to... Um, I'm sure am glad that we have this uh, extremely simplistic view of a very uh, complicated world. Yeah. Uh, this is great. I'm glad that all these serious people are in charge. Um, <laughs> this is good stuff. I, this, is, this is also coming to a just, a, just about time here. So uh, I want to say, Chuka, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today. This was a, a very interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I want to say also to all of our listeners, all of our supporters, uh, thank you very much for listening, and those of you who have stuck with us for a period of, um, let's say, an uneven, an uneven release schedule due to uh, chaos in our lives, mm-hmm. uh, thank you for your patience, uh, but we are recording a whole lot of episodes at once to keep that from happening again. I'm feeling Riley. like we're back. <laughs> Riley, uh, when are you going to be a UK Prime Minister? Yeah. Uh, you know what? They're, they're saying I'm already Prime Minister. <laughs> uh <laughs> it's legal for Canadian citizens to sit as MPs, and it's le- and any MP can be made the head of the party. I'm oh, saying, so, yeah, I'm saying, to him, do it. you got to do it, man. You got to yeah, do it. You have Look, to. Uh, Andy Warhol said in the 1960s uh, that in the future everyone will be UK Prime Minister for uh, one tenth of an economic cycle. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, thank you, thank you, seriously, uh, Chuga, for coming on and hanging out with us. Yeah, thanks, great. man. Yeah, it was, and, um, it was nice to speak to you. Both. All of you, uh, all of you listeners out there in Radioland, uh, we'll see you next week for uh, well, who knows which of the backlog will release next week? I guess time will show. Time will show. Bye, everyone. Bye. Cheers.